So um, this week and the next two Sunday evenings are going to kind of fit together. Um, there'll be a bit of overlap. Um, hopefully they'll build on one another. Um, but tonight we're thinking about great statements of faith, um, great truths to uphold. Uh, next week we're going to think about the Oxford Martyrs, so particularly how the Reformation was um, uh, lived out just down the road in Oxford. I'm going to tell you about the Oxford Martyrs. Um, and then the final week we're going to really think about Reformation today. What does it look like for us to continue to reform our understandings and beliefs so that we continue to be faithful to Christ. So that's where we're going. So just a recap from um, the first time we did this sort of introduction to the Reformation in the morning services a few weeks ago. I guess if you were to sum up what the Reformation was all about in one statement or one question, it would be this. How can I know God and be right with him? That is kind of what it was all about, ultimately. That was what was at stake, which is why um, people went to the stake for these truths. That was ultimately the big question. Uh, And at the time, there was a sort of clash between the sort of formal Roman Catholic teaching, which was saying that salvation is God's grace um, plus human effort. And the Bible was teaching and is teaching salvation is by God's grace alone, that great verse that we had read earlier. What I'd love you to do is turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, the passage that I've already referred to earlier in the service. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Uh, Martin's just come around with a little worksheet. If, if any of you haven't got one, perhaps just stick a hand up. Homework. There we go. You think you can come to church and not work. There we go. Um, I'm just going to read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 9, uh, and then um, ask you to respond to a few things. This is Paul uh, writing to the church in Ephesus. It's modern-day Turkey, and he says this in Ephesians um, chapter 2. I'm afraid I've got a slightly different translation in front of me. I'll get the one that you've all got. Sorry. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That in a nutshell is a wonderful explanation of the Christian gospel. And it's these Christian gospel truths that the people of the Reformation were fighting for. So I want you to look on the screen um, behind me. And we get these sort of series of statements that Paul is outlying in in Ephesians chapter 2. I once was spiritually dead and facing judgment. Could someone just look down just so you can do a little bit of work? Someone shout out the verse of of verses 1 to 9. Which verse is it that's speaking of this? I once was spiritually dead and facing judgment. Yep, verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
transparent. And then the verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul's making it really clear, this is what you and I once were. Uh, And that's a great Reformation truth, to be able to declare and to uphold this truth that without Christ we are spiritually dead and facing judgment. Second great truth that's declared in this passage, through Jesus I have been, and we see, don't we, made spiritually alive and been rescued. Someone shout out a verse that speaks of that. Yeah, verse 5. Made alive with Christ. It's this wonderful... uh, Declaration: You were dead, but you've now been made alive. And of course, it's not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death, which is why baptism is very symbolic. I die to my old way of life. I'm raised to new life. So there's the first two great Reformation truths. I once was spiritually dead. I need to know that. I need to be convicted of it. But through Jesus, I've been made spiritually alive. So what is grace? That great verse in, in verse 8. It's God's gift of forgiveness and new life. Not something that I can earn, not something that I deserve, but something he freely gives and holds out to all people that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. That is what grace is, a gift from God. And then the final question, well, why have I been offered life? What's the purpose of life? And you have to perhaps go beyond verse 9 into verse 10 for this, which I didn't read. Answer that I might live a life to serve the God who made me. God doesn't rescue me and take me from death to life just so that I'm alive. He rescues me and makes me alive that I might give my life to him to serve him. It's much more than just a passport to heaven. Um, The grace of God is changing my heart bit by bit that I might be more effective in serving God and become more like Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 9 uh, is a wonderful explanation of the gospel and this is really what we're fighting for in the Reformation and if you were to sum up the Reformation, uh, one phrase that's Latin that you might have heard before is sola fide, sola just means alone, fide, faith, sola fide, Uh, a great Reformation truth is that we are saved through faith alone Uh, and so here are just a few questions on the screen for you to ponder. And they might seem very obvious and stupid questions to ask, but I think there's a bit more depth to them when you think about them carefully. Um, So for the benefit of those listening on the tape later, do you treasure the gospel? Not just know the gospel, do you treasure it like you might treasure a very valuable possession at home? Do you frequently speak the gospel to yourself? What do I mean by that? I think that's... What the Bible would describe as meditation, that lovely picture you have in Psalm 1 of a person rooted in the word of God. Uh, My delight or his delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. It's speaking the gospel to ourselves frequently. Uh, Do you do that? Because it's one thing knowing the gospel, but we have to frequently speak it to ourselves, speak it to each other because we so quickly forget it. A third question, this is perhaps the most odd one to ask you. Do you believe the gospel? If you're a Christian, you go, well, of course I do. But I mean it in the sense of, do you really believe that you have been saved through faith in Christ and Christ alone? Because there are many times in life where as Christians we want to self-justify. We want to prove ourselves to God. We feel so horribly guilty when we mess up that we feel distanced from God and it takes time to come back to him. But if we really believe the gospel and we really believe the Reformation truths that we're looking at tonight, that will help us to come back to God quickly because of all that Christ has done for us. And finally, the obvious thing then to ask the question of is, if if these things are true, if I treasure the gospel, if I speak it to myself regularly, if I really believe it, do I share it? Because if I'm not someone who has a deep 
conviction of my need to share it and a deep desire to want to share it, perhaps I don't treasure it enough. Perhaps I haven't really understood it because it is the single greatest piece of news anybody could hear. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. So this is the stuff of the Reformation. And I made the point in the introduction, why kind of look at church history? Some people don't particularly like history. Um, The reason history matters is because we can look back and see how people in the past have fought for certain truths, upheld certain truths, how certain truths have been denied, how they've been defended. And this can give us great confidence. I've mentioned before, the word heresy comes from a word that literally could be translated to choose. All heresies, which is error in truth or non-truth, all heresies come from a place where a person says, I don't want to believe what God is as he has revealed himself to me in scripture. This is my projection of who I think God is. And all heresies come from a choice not to listen to the voice of God, but to listen to some other voice. And so to be able to spot heresy, we need to understand what truth is. And that's what the Reformation was fighting for. A few examples. I want you to think about certain statements that you and I are bombarded with, maybe advertisements. There are statements which are trying to convey to us something important. So the guys in Paris at L'Oreal are trying to convey to you with their adverts, with girls swishing their hair and looking beautiful. And the strap line is because you're worth it. They're trying to convey a statement because you are worth it. It's worth investing in very expensive hair products to make you look beautiful and of course in the the videos that you see when you use these products apparently they make you look beautiful it's a very strong statement that's trying to move your heart to do something which is to buy their product or apple uh, one of their strap lines think differently wanting us to to recognize that actually is it worth spending twice as much on a, a laptop computer than most people do and is it really worth it now some people say yes it is some people say no it's not it's a kind of marmite thing but they're, they're conveying a statement and wanting you to buy into it think differently maybe you could invest in a different type of computer uh, our products are the best they say and, and they're trying to appeal to you to do something about it this one i particularly liked for people who don't like going to the gym this is an advert on some product. Um, the one thing you can sh- get into shape without exercising is your eyebrows. Um, and so here they're trying to convey a statement about looking after your eyebrows so that you look better. And this particular product was claiming that it could help you with that. Uh, something a bit more serious. This is the logo of my school in Bath. Uh, that was the crest that was on all our, our school blazers and, and, and shirts and things. And uh, the, the phrases around them are two Latin phrases. The one at the top... Um, it translates not to be served but to serve it comes from mark chapter 10 verse 45 the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many Uh, the bottom statement is another latin phrase uh, your word is truth these were two statements that in my school were important historically which were taught and which were upheld in the values of the school and things that were imprinted on my heart from a very young age there were statements that were trying to convey something important and i thank god that by his grace those statements have become important to me and I'm able to proclaim them today. So we're going to look at some statements, some different things that were written during the Reformation that will give us some confidence in the gospel. And the first one is going back a little bit and repeating in part at least some of the stuff we did in the introduction to the Reformation. I want to take you to Martin Luther, who is the main character in the little video that we saw. Uh, and Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Uh, it was on the 31st of October in 1517 that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg 
And so on the 31st of October this year, it will have been 500 years since this date. So this was the date which many people recognize as the Reformation Day. It was very significant. And I made the point that this uh, 95 theses, these 95 statements, were essentially a 16th century equivalent of a provocative blog post. They were pinned on this church door in a very obvious place. And the desire for it was to get people debating and thinking. If you have your little handout that was passed there, at the top there, I've written out what Martin Luther wrote before the 95 theses, the statements. This was his introduction. And all the passers-by would come past this door and see this. I'll read it to us. Luther said, Out of love for the truth and from a desire to elucidate it, that just means explain it or make it known, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, an ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asked that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally should do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And he listed 95 statements that he wanted to defend, which he thought would provoke people, particularly the laity and, and educational academic people, to think about, to, in, to, to debate with. And what I've done is on this sheet, I've given you eight of them. They're not in order, as in the first eight of the 95. I've just picked eight that are perhaps a little simpler and a bit easier to understand. And we're going to do a little bit of interactive stuff, uh, if you will help me with that. One of the first of the statements, and this was the first of the 95 Thesis, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I'd like you just to have a think of the question that's on the sheet underneath. Why is it essential to understand that repentance is both a one-off act when I come to faith in Christ, but also an ongoing act through the rest of our life? Why doesn't someone just shout out, uh, a response. Why do you think that matters? We're going we're gonna to interact with these theses a little bit like Martin Luther would have wanted people 500 years to do. Why do we need to understand repentance as a one-off act and an ongoing daily thing? Simple. We fall daily. Every day I need to come back to my Heavenly Father and I come back to my Father through Jesus Christ. So the purpose of this statement was to help people to recognize I once was dead. And if it weren't for the grace of God, I would stay dead. So daily I need to come back to the cross and seek the forgiveness of my Father. And so this was the first statement that people were interacting with to help them remind themselves they were dead and without Christ they would be dead. It's a great thing to think about. Uh, the next three I put down um, are all to do with purgatory um, and false teaching. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest... The soul flies out of purgatory. This was a reference to, and I talked about this in the introduction, indulgences. Certain people, and one guy I mentioned was this man called John Tetzel, were going around and saying to people, when you die, there's a time between death and final resurrection in heaven. It's a place called purgatory. And you're there for sin to be purged from you. But if you come to us and give us money, you can buy what's called an indulgence, and that will buy you time off purgatory the more money you give us the longer the in, the bigger the indulgence and the more time you can buy and everyone was buying into this and i said because infant mortality rates were very low lots of children were dying parents were thinking this was a great thing to do to look after their dead children everyone was buying them martin luther was responding saying this is a complete heresy it's not true at all and so you can read in two three and four different things about indulgences Here's a question for you then. Why would he have 
written at least three, and actually many of the 95 theses were around this whole issue of indulgences. He wants people to engage with truths in the Bible which tell us that we're saved through grace alone. And indulgences were telling people, you're not saved through grace alone. You can buy, in part at least, your salvation. So let's have a few people shout out. This is important we can do this. Where would you go in the Bible when someone says to me, well, you Christians talk about being saved by faith alone. Show me a verse. We've got to be able to do it quickly because it's so, so important. Let's shout out a few verses. Great. John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's have a few more. Brilliant. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Brilliant verse to take people to. Let's have a few more. Great. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Great verse. But have been justified freely by his grace as it goes on. Yeah, thank you. Let's have a couple more. Brilliant. I think it's Romans chapter 10. Um, but there's similar stuff talked about in, in 1 John. Yeah, if you believe in your heart... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ rose from the dead, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Brilliant. Think of, let's have one more from someone. Think of the, the, the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. When the son comes back to the father, what does the father not do? He doesn't say grovel. Earn your, earn it. He just does this with his arms, come home. It's a lovely picture. If you don't want to go to a verse, go to a story. It's a lovely picture of grace alone. So the reason that Martin Luther was putting some of these things in to help people to engage with indulgences is he's wanting people to say, hang on, that's not right, is it? I've read my Bible and I know these verses and they say something totally different to what some of the priests and people like John Tetzel are saying. This is why some of these were one of some of the 95 theses. He's trying to get people to engage and see where error is. Come to the fifth one. They are enemies of Christ and the Pope who forbid altogether the preaching of the word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. So here's a question for you. What do you think is the relationship between our walk with Christ and hearing faithful preaching of his word? What's the relationship? Yeah. How can I walk faithfully with my God if I'm not listening to my God's voice, knowing how he wants me to live my life? And there were some people coming along saying, don't preach the word of God, just tell people about indulgences. So again, we're interacting with him going, hang on, that doesn't make any sense. If I don't listen to God's voice, how can I follow him? If a sheep doesn't listen to the shepherd's voice, how can I follow him? Uh, number six, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. People read that and they're just then provoked to think, is the gospel the thing that I most treasure? It's worth asking that question in your own life and in the life of our church. Is the gospel the thing that we most treasure? Is the gospel the thing we get most exercised about? Is it the gospel that moves us to tears? 
because actually in the life of a church there's all sorts of other things however legitimate they may be that actually in reality are more important to us we spend more time doing thinking about debating discussing and the purpose of this particular statement was to say what is it you most treasure it would have been very provocative as people walked past the door read this and went away thinking what is it i treasure do i treasure the traditions in my church more than the gospel and then seven and eight Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ their head through penalties, death, and hell. And then eight, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the full security of peace. If you were buying indulgences, you would then perhaps be led to think, well, it doesn't really matter how I live my life because I can kind of pay my way through my sin and get to heaven. But as I've asked on on the paper there, what is Luther reminding us of here in terms of the cost of discipleship? Why are some of these statements that talk about the struggle of being a Christian, the cost of being a Christian, really important for us to engage with? Let's have a few thoughts from people. It's not a guarantee of an easy life. I just look around this room at many people who are struggling and many people who struggled for decades with certain things. Being a Christian does not make life easier. Many times it makes life harder. And it's important that we recognize that coming to Christ doesn't necessarily make our life easier, even if by his grace it will make our life better. And there's a big difference. So do you see, I've just tried to give a few illustrations, but the purpose of these 95 theses was people would walk past the door, they'd read them, and they'd either dispute in person with Luther or with each other, but it got people talking. And sometimes we perhaps need to look at the stuff on the news, look at the things that um, are being declared in Parliament, look at the things on the television, and debate in our hearts, debate around the table in our homes, interact with things. Is this that is being proclaimed to me as truth, truth as taught in Scripture? And if we do that regularly, it will be our equivalent of interacting with the 95 Theses 500 years ago. I'm just trying to illustrate how it would have worked, and I hope that's helped us to sort of engage with some of the things that were going on. Second one I want to give us, I'll probably just give us three tonight, and then I'll save the the fourth one for next week, because it perhaps might fit a bit more closely. Um, The Papal Bull. Do you remember when I talked about the diet of worms? I wasn't talking about a plate of wiggly, squishy things that people were eating. A diet was a gathering at a place called Worms in Germany. Similarly, the papal bull is not the Pope who had an oversized pet. A bull was a a declaration or a decree issued by the Pope, hence it's papal. A papal bull is a decree issued by the Pope. And there was a decree issued by the Roman Catholic Pope, Pope Leo X, And it was a decree against Martin Luther. It came three years after he had nailed his 95 Theses to the wall in 1520. Uh, And you can see here, this is a a copy of the original one. And you can see in Latin there, bulla contra ero. A bull or a a decree. Contra means against and error, error. It's a decree against the errors. And underneath, you might better just read the words Martin Luther. This was a decree given by the Roman Catholic Pope trying to pick holes in and declare publicly the errors of Martin Luther. He actually rejected 41 of the 95 theses and gave Luther 60 days to recant. And he famously said in this bull, what has been written here is offensive to pious ears. 
Just think about the Gospels for a moment. Think about Jesus Christ and some of the things he said that were very provocative. I've liked Martin Luther and his 95 Theses. And, and, and can you think of a group of people who said, this is offensive what you're saying to pious ears? Thank you. Mark chapter 2. What's the story? Jesus heals someone. Paralyzed man. And before he heals him, what does he say to this man? Your sins are forgiven. And what do the Pharisees and the religious leaders do? They say, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. They're effectively saying, what you've just said is offensive to our pious religious ears. And this is what the Pope was doing to Martin Luther. And on the 10th of December, though, Martin Luther burned this bull. Remember, not an animal, but a declaration from the Pope. And you saw it on the fun little video. And he stood in the center of his town with one of his good friends, Philip Melanchthon, and he burned, and there's a little sort of cartoon depiction, Martin Luther burning um, this papal bull that was saying that what he was teaching was offensive. Uh, And these are the literal words of Martin Luther. He was pretty angry. Whoever wrote this bull... He is Antichrist. I protest before God, our Lord Jesus Christ, his sacred angels and the whole world, that with my whole heart I dissent from the damnation of this bull, that I curse and execrate it as sacrilege and blasphemy of Christ, God's Son and our Lord. And then after declaring this publicly, and people were listening in, he took this declaration, this papal bull, and holding in his hand, he said this. He spoke to the declaration. It was in his hand. He said this. Because you have confounded the truth and the saints of God, today the Lord confounds you into the fire with you. And he throws it away and burns it publicly. And then he gets excommunicated. And it was a year later that the Diet of Worms I referred to last time happened, where there was this gathering, and the Pope came, and the Emperor Charles V came. And remember they asked Luther to recant. And remember the Emperor, and I said this before, he famously declared, you, Luther, will not make a heretic out of me. In other words, do not challenge what we're teaching in the church. And I love Luther, and this is what I particularly want you to think about. Luther refused to recant, and this is what he said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I am bound by scripture. Thus I cannot and will not recant. I can do no other. Here I stand, so help me God. I want you just to think about those two statements. My conscience is captive to the word of God. In other words, there's a tight bond between this, what God has spoken... And my own heart. And I will not err to the left or to the right. I am bound by this. Because I believe it's not just words, but it's the word of God. And, and I, love, I love the phrase, I am bound by scripture. We're living in a culture where the word of God is being undermined all the time. And we need to think seriously about whether or not we could declare, as Martin Luther did, I'm bound by scripture. I believe that this is timeless truth that's true for all generations, will never, ever change. You can't add to it, you can't take away from it. My conscience is bound to it. And I give you that example just to encourage you. We need to be people who Martin Luther stand with consciences bound to the word of God. Uh, When um, we did uh, some work on the authority of the Bible uh, last year or the year before, I referred to the Pilling Report of 2013, which was a report published in the Church of England. And the idea behind the Pilling Report, the motivation was wanting to open up a debate or a discussion about the Word of God, 
because people are recognizing people in our generation today don't take the word of God seriously and perhaps we need to have a discussion about whether this is reliable today and whether or not things could be changed or added now the motivation behind it and, and when you read it at a first glance this document looks quite humble let's have a discussion let's get in a room and talk let's learn together and it has a, an air of false humility well, an air of humility, but it's a false humility because when you dig deeply and you look at this report that was published by the Church of England, there's been huge debate about this over the last few years. Ultimately, the assumption was that scripture is fluid. It can change. It can be altered. And that God and his character changes too. And God, perhaps over the generations, reveals himself in different ways. And what was once said and stood as truth, maybe won't always stand as truth. And it's very, very subtle. But we need to be guarded, don't we? You think of uh, Genesis chapter 3. What does Satan do when he comes along to tempt Adam and Eve? It's a very subtle. Did God really say that? Don't throw it out, but just twist it a bit. And what was going on with the repelling report was exactly really what was going on in Genesis chapter 3. And, and it's led to a culture, and we're living in a culture where increasingly people, and increasingly sadly people in church, no longer sit under the word of God, but at best sit alongside the word of God and often sit above the word of God. And we need to work out, are we going to have the conviction, like Luther, that our consciences are bound by scripture? I don't just believe what's in it, I believe what it is. And therefore I won't change my understanding and I won't believe that this needs to be modified to fit a new culture, a new age. My culture needs to change to sit under the word of God. And that's what Luther stood for. Uh, I'll give you one more, uh, and then we'll finish. I want to bring things closer to home. Uh, William Tyndale. The Reformation, in many ways, kind of began in Europe, but it didn't stay in Europe. And I want to talk about this guy, William Tyndale, who was famous for the, the Bible in English. If you have a copy of the Bible in English in front of you, which I presume we all do, William Tyndale is really the reason why you have a Bible. And I hope by understanding some of his story, and I'll do this briefly, that you'll treasure your Bible more. William Tyndale uh, grew up in the Cotswolds. He was the son of a cloth merchant. And he knew that Martin Luther came to a discovery of grace alone, that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 truth, through reading the Bible. And we looked at this in the introduction, didn't we? It was through reading some of the words of Augustine, who was an early church father, and reading the words of Romans chapter 1 verse 16. How can I be right with God? Which, remember, I began tonight as the big question of the Reformation. Tyndale knew that Luther was converted because he read the word of God. But Tyndale also had a conviction which he shared with Luther. The big problem is people didn't have the Bible. They didn't have their own Bible. And if they did, they couldn't read it. Why? It was in Latin. And who read Latin? Just the scholars. Ordinary people couldn't even read the word of God because it wasn't in their language. You know the phrase hocus pocus? When the, the Roman Catholic priests were doing their thing during um, their sort of uh, communion service and they were using Latin words, hoc est, etc. They were saying, here is the literal body and blood of Jesus. People who were sitting in these services couldn't understand what they were saying because it was all in Latin. Hence where the phrase hocus pocus comes from because they were speaking these Latin words, hoc est, etc. Hocus pocus, I have no idea what they're saying. And people were just sitting through these services but they weren't engaging. Well, Tyndale wanted the Bible to be in English. He, he apparently once spoke to a critical um, uh, um, church leader and said this with quite a lot of disdain. The boy that drives the plough 
will know the scriptures better than you. I love that. He's saying to this sort of academic, proud man, the little boy down the road, on his tractor as it were, he's going to know the scriptures better than you because I'm going to give my life to getting this Bible out of Latin into English to get it in a mother tongue so people, ordinary people can read it. And so he set about giving his life to translating Erasmus's Latin, or, sorry, Greek New Testament into English. But there was a problem. At the time, there was very low literacy. But over time, that changed because education rose. We talked about in the 15th century, the, the printing press, which meant that things that were written could be shared more quickly. There was a big population explosion in cities. So in 1500, there were 60,000 people living in London. A century later, in 1600, there were 200,000 people living in London. Tiny by today's comparison. But lots of people were moving to the city. And when you come to the city, then people would talk. And there was education in schools and universities. And therefore, education was on the rise. And the thing that William Tyndale is most famous for is smuggling 16,000 Bibles into the UK. Because at the time, at that time, the king... Henry VIII didn't want English Bibles. If you know anything of history, you'll know the story. Having smuggled 16,000 Bibles into England, he was caught in 1535. He was strangled and then he was burned. But these were his final words just before he died. It was a prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Now, God's a big God, and he's good at answering prayer. And do you know how God answered that prayer two years later? Guess what Henry VIII, the king, declared as law? A Bible, in English, must be placed in every church in England. The person who had burned him at the stake for daring to bring English Bibles into the country, God changed his heart that he then declared a Bible needs to be placed in every church in the land. Uh, I was passed, John Billet passed me an article this week from the Wycliffe Bible Translators um, who declared that there are still 1.5 billion people on the planet who still don't have God's word in their mother tongue. That's why the work of Wycliffe and other other groups similar to them are really important. It's why we need to pray for Steve and Matilda. It's why we need to pray for the Koo family and support them with this gift day. Because what they're doing, along with many others, is they have the same conviction of William Tyndale. I want people to be able to read this in their own language. So a final question for you, and I asked this at the beginning. Do you, now you know something of William Tyndale and what he gave his life to and ultimately gave up his life for, do you treasure your Bible? Not to worship our Bible, not bibliolatry, but do you treasure it because of who the Bible speaks of, Jesus Christ? Do you treasure it? Because there are men and women through the centuries who have literally given their lives, work, and then given their life, that you have a Bible in English. And if William Tyndall hadn't done what he had done, you probably wouldn't have the Bible in English in front of you today. And if it was in Latin still, most of us would still be struggling. And if you treasure your Bible, do you read it? I know our lives are busy. I know there is all sorts of competing demands on our time. But do we read our Bible? Maybe one added motivation today to read your Bible can be to thank God for people like William Tyndale, who gave up everything so that you can read your Bible. Let God speak to you. And do you believe your Bible? Will we be obedient to it? Now, friends, just as I close, um, the sort of history in there. Look, if you forget all the dates, all the names of the people, all that sort of stuff, don't worry. What matters 
is the big picture. Go back to the beginning. What is the Reformation all about? Answering that question, how can I get right with God? And I hope just some of the illustrations, even if there's just been one that's captured your heart, there'll be something from tonight that will remind you and help you with this great and glorious truth. How can I get right with God and know him? Maybe it's Luther's 95 Theses statements, which I have to interact with. Next time you watch the news or you listen to something publicized, interact with it. Is that faithful to what God says? And if it's not, who will I listen to, the world or the God who made me? Maybe Luther can inspire you. Maybe it's that papal bull where Luther said, enough, I will not recount what I believe because I stand, my conscience is bound, is captive. And if that means perhaps losing a friend or being ridiculed at work because of your integrity or maybe something in school, some of you younger folk being brave and saying, no, I follow Jesus and you can laugh at me and you can think I'm stupid for going to church. But my conscience is bound by the word of God and I know him and love him. So whatever you think of me, I'm going to keep standing and trusting him. Maybe that's an application for some of you younger folk. And maybe the story of William Tyndale can inspire you. Someone who gave his life and gave up his life that you can have the Bible in your own language. Friends, I think as we journey together over the next couple of weeks and as we just try and understand something of our history, it helps us to have a a greater depth and richness of understanding what people have given up that we can freely in our church today proclaim the gospel and live out the gospel among one another. And that will be my prayer as we continue to learn together next week. So as I said, next week, Oxford Martyrs, a really inspiring story, and we're going to think a little bit about some practical ways today in which we might need to fight for truth. Um, So it would be great to see you back next week. What I'd love us to do, um, we're going to pray together. just to remain seated, but the band to come up and, and lead us in the song, What a Faithful God Have I. And let's just remain seated and sing this song as a prayer, thanking God for his incredible faithfulness. Thanking God for his faithfulness to people who were faithful to him 500 years ago. And the fact that the church still exists and stands today is only because God is faithful. Let's sing this together. And then what I'd love us to do is, just for a few people, to raise your voices and to pray out loud to encourage all of us. Prayers of praise to our faithful God. Lord, I want to thank you for John Wycliffe, who was so convinced and convicted of the need for people to have the word of God in their own language, that he gave his whole life, adult life, to translating the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would move each of us to have deep convictions in our hearts of what matters most in life. But help us then not to have those convictions, but to act on them that the time that we spend in our lives, the money that we invest in our lives, what we give ourselves to would be a reflection of the convictions of our heart. And Lord, that would be different for all of us. We've all got different skills. You've called us to serve you in different places. But please, would you help us by your grace to live out faithfully our convictions each and every day. Amen.